We pray. Lord, thank you that you're here with us. Uh, thank you that we're able to worship together and that sense of you speaking to us corporately about our salvation as we worshipped. And uh, we pray now as Bill takes us into the Bible again that you give us eyes to see uh, clearly and you feed our spirits and our bodies through your word. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so, yes, as Chris says, we're, we're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God? What, what does that phrase mean? Um, and last time, I don't know if you remember, we, we looked at Genesis 1 to 3. Um, and, and I basically argued that the, the principles of what the kingdom of God is, we find them explained in, in the first two chapters of the Bible. And for me, it's summarized by uh, this picture. Do you remember this? So the idea that that's pe- the, the picture that's painted in Genesis 1 and 2 is of, is of God and creation in perfect harmony. Um, everything is shalom. Everything is at peace. And everything's doing what it was designed to do. And, and humans have this funny role because humans are part of creation, but they also have a purpose, which is to rule over creation and to rule over creation like God rules, to, to be the image of God, to rule like God rules. Um, and that, that's the concept. That my argument is that's what the kingdom of God looks like in principle. And I finished last time by saying the trouble is it's gone wrong. Uh, humans walked out of that relationship. And I argued that the, the rest of the Bible is answering the question, how are we going to restore that picture? That the question of the Bible is, how can we bring humans back into that relationship where all of creation is restored to shalom? Everything is doing what, what it was created to do. And humans are playing this role that they were designed to play, which is to rule in God's image, to rule like God does, uh, which means ordering creation in such a way that everything can flourish, everything can do what it was designed to do. So today, all I'm trying to do is sweep through the whole Old Testament uh, and bring us to the end of the Old Testament. So by the end of today, we'll be um, sitting in Israel um, at the time when Jesus appeared. Okay, that's my goal. So there's a health warning here. This is going to be big picture. It's not going to be very deep. I'm going to be leaving out an awful lot. Okay, we're skipping over. And the, the way I'm going to do it is in a series of snapshots. But the reason I'm doing this is because what I want to do is get inside the mind of a first-century Jewish person. Because when Jesus was trekking around Galilee, announcing that the kingdom of God was near, I would suggest it meant something specific to a first-century Jewish person in Galilee. And what it meant to them was very different from what it means to us. But Jesus was talking to them. So if we want to know what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of God means, if we want to understand it, we need to get inside the head of a first century Jewish person listening to Jesus. 
Okay? So that's my aim. Okay, and here's, here's our first snapshot. I know it's, it's staggering, isn't it? Whoever dropped that. Um, here's my first snapshot. Um, Exodus 15. So this is the moment, this is the moment when Israel becomes a nation. Okay, the, the waters have just closed over Pharaoh and his army. And the, the Israelites have escaped onto dry land. And it's a bit like a musical, because um, Moses leads them in a song. They, they celebrate their rescue from Egypt and the fact that they've been chosen by Yahweh, the creator God, to be his people, to be a nation. And they, they sing this song. And the climax of the song in Exodus 15 is the Lord. Whenever you see the Lord in the Old Testament in capital letters, that, that is the translation of Yahweh. So that's his name, Yahweh. What they sing is Yahweh reigns forever and ever. And this is the first key point. When you read the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, it means a nation. It means a people. It's talking about Israel. That is, the, they are, this people is the kingdom of God. Why are they the kingdom of God? Because God is their king. Yahweh is their king. And he's chosen them to be his kingdom, his people. In the Old Testament, that is what the kingdom of God means. It's talking about Israel. Um, but because Yahweh is the God who is their king, and Yahweh is also the creator God who wants to restore creation, as we were looking at last time, that means Israel's job is to step into the gap. Israel, they've been chosen for a purpose, and their purpose is to do the job that we were talking about last time. As they're faithful to Yahweh, as they obey the law, as they worship him, as they, they become the, the, the people who occupy that role of ruling in God's image, ruling in his name. And the idea is that the rest of creation, all the other nations, see this and say, that looks good. We want to join in with that. That is the concept of Israel. That's the reason God chooses the people, so that they can take the lead in, in returning to being what humans are meant to be. Um, that's Israel's job. And this idea of that this is the kingdom of God because Yahweh is their king. They don't have a human king because Yahweh is their king. This is kind of re repeated and reinforced all throughout the early stages of the Old Testament. So, for example, Yahweh lives with them. His presence is with them. He lives in a tent with them in the desert. He leads them through the desert. Remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, of smoke? God is their king. He really is their king. My favorite example of this is uh, in the book of Judges. So um, Israel and now they've moved into the land and there's kind of battles. They're attacked on all sides and they finally defeat the Midianites. Okay, 
And they're so pleased at finally defeating the Midianites that the people of Israel take Gideon, who's led them in this military campaign, and they say, oh, you've done so well, we want you to be our king. How does Gideon react to this idea? So this is Judges 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. We like the look of you, Gideon. You're the, you're king material, because you've won this massive victory for us over the Midianites. What does Gideon say? He says, you idiot. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, because Yahweh will rule over you. We're not the kind of people who have human kings. Duh! Don't you get it? That's the whole point. We are the kingdom of God because Yahweh is our king. Okay? Clear? Understand? With me so far? Well then, how do you explain this? Key little passage. This is Deuteronomy 17. So this is earlier on. This is before they occupy the land. Deuteronomy, that you've got to picture the scene. Um, Israel has trekked through the desert for 40 years, and they're camped just across the Jordan from Israel. And Moses reminds them of the law. He's, it, and Moses isn't going to go with them. He's going to die before they enter the land. They're going to follow Joshua into the land. But Moses, the last thing he does before he dies is he reminds them of the law. But he also edits it a bit. He edits it a bit. He adds a few clauses to the law. And this is one of them. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, then snap out of it, because that's not who we are. We don't have human kings, says Moses. No, he doesn't. He says, yeah, when you'd say that, be sure to appoint over you a king that Yahweh, your God, chooses. Do you see the tension here? Now, this is the law. Okay, Moses is giving them the law on behalf of God. This people whose king is God himself. But there's a tension here. Because also built into the law is the idea that they can have a human king. The key thing is, it's a king that Yahweh chooses. And then it goes on to explain the kind of king that Yahweh wants. And Moses explains that this, this, this king mustn't grab wealth or power for themselves. This king is not going to exploit the people. In other words, this is a different kind of king from all the other kings. This is hardly a king at all. Because he doesn't grab power and wealth. He doesn't exploit his people. And he goes on to paint even more of a picture. Um, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Le Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere Yahweh his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And he is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. What kind of king is this? 
This is a king who doesn't consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And his passion isn't acquiring power or wealth or exploiting the people. It's God. This is a king whose passion is the law. uh, A king who wants to serve Yahweh. Is this a king or is this a priest? Now, what kind of template for a king is this? Key passage. Well, this tension continues, and it rises to a head. Um, One famous passage, 1 Samuel 8. Is this all right? We are skipping over very fast. This is a series of snapshots. This is the next one. 1 Samuel 8. It's a famous story. Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king. They say to him, you are old and your sons do not follow, follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. We want a king just like all the other nations have. What did Moses tell them in Deuteronomy? When you ask for a king, the one thing is, it's got to be different from all the other nations' kings. He's given him the, he's given them the, the jigsaw piece that they're looking for to complete the picture. But what they're asking for is exactly what all, all the other nations have. It's the one thing that Deuteronomy says you shouldn't do. Okay, do you see that? So, but how, what happens next? Here's this funny thing. Uh, Samuel complains to Yahweh, and he says, they're rejecting me. They, they're asking for a king like all the other nations have. Yahweh says to him, I know. Actually, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me they're rejecting. And Yahweh explains to Samuel all the consequences if they get a king like all the other nations have. And it's everything that Deuteronomy says. He's going he's gonna to steal their wealth. He's going to gather power for himself. He's going to exploit them. It'll, it'll ruin their nation. And so Yahweh says, do it. Fine. Give them the king they want. In fact, have this one. And he suggests all. Yahweh chooses, Yahweh gives them what they're asking for, even though it's exactly what he warned them against in Deuteronomy. This is how the tension plays out. It's a strange story. And what happens? Well, Saul takes the throne, and it's a disaster. Everything that Yahweh warned them would happen when they got a king like all the other nations happens. They suffer militarily. Saul acquires power and wealth. He exploits the people. It's a disaster. But while Saul is still on the throne, get this, while Saul is still king, Yahweh whispers in Samuel's ear and tells him to go and anoint another king. Do you see what Yahweh is doing there? Yahweh's given them Saul because they've asked for a king like all the other nations have. He said, that's not a good idea. Remember Deuteronomy 17. And then Yahweh's secret. You know the story. It's a fabulous story. Um, Samuel goes and he finds Jesse. And he knows he's got to anoint one of Jesse's sons. 
and he goes down the line. He goes to the eldest, and he's thinking, fine, strapping lad, make a fine king. God says no. And he goes all the way down, all six sons, and God says no each time. And so Samuel says, have you got any more? And they laugh. Well, that's David. And so David is brought, and Yahweh says, yeah, that's the one. Now, what are we supposed to think at this stage in the story? We're supposed to think Deuteronomy 17. This is the jigsaw piece. This is the one. This is a king not like other nations have. This is a king whose heart is for God, who, who will be the first among equals, who won't exploit the people. And we all know the story. Next time you read 1 Samuel and you read the story of David, it's fascinating to see how the narrator draws out all the features of Deuteronomy 17. You know, this is a king who doesn't want special treatment. He's with the men. He's with his men. He, he refuses to exploit his position. But above all, his heart is for God. He's, he's a man after God's own heart, a king after God's own heart. His passion is for the law. He's a worshipper. And you're thinking, this is it. This is Deuteronomy 17 in action. And what happens to Israel? Israel becomes, first of all, peaceful. For the first time since they enter the land, Israel is at peace with its neighbors. And it becomes prosperous. Everything is fruitful and, and multiplies. And it rapidly becomes this, this powerful nation, such that other nations come and watch. They're fascinated. They're drawn to it. And you think, this is it. This is creation being restored. This is Israel doing what it was designed to do, which is to demonstrate God's kingdom and demonstrate God's rule And because it's so attractive. And you think, just for a moment, you kind of catch a glimpse of God's intention for God's people. A glimpse of the kingdom of God. But then what happens? Well, Bathsheba's shower breaks. And so she has to take her baths on the roof. (sighs) How annoying. And so what happens? David spots her and it leads to murder. And and it turns out that David is not the Deuteronomy 17 jigsaw piece after all. But just for a moment, you catch a glimpse of Israel doing what Israel was meant to do. And it ends in failure, but there's another key, key passage, which is this. Just after David has... uh, has kind of got the the throne. He's replaced Saul. Uh, Nathan the prophet comes to him and says this. The Lord, basically God makes David a promise. God makes David a promise. Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, in other words, when you pop your clogs, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
Now that's an incredible promise. And you begin to think, ah, so it's not, we now know that David isn't the Deuteronomy 17 king. He's not the jigsaw piece. But one of his offsprings will, maybe it's Solomon. Okay, well, the story continues. David's reign is the high point in the Old Testament. From then on, it's declined. Solomon starts well, but he turns out to be just another king like the other nations have a king. Ends in disaster. And then there's a succession of worse and worse and worse kings. And so the inevitable happens. The, the kingdom divides shortly after Solomon's reign. And then finally, after 400, 500 years, they go into exile. First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom goes into exile. So, let's wind forward. We're now, we're now sitting in Israel in the first century, just before Jesus. What is the state of the kingdom of God? What is the state of the kingdom of God? Well, in a way, uh, exile is over. They've returned to the land. That's the good news. Everything else is bad news. Because actually, they're hardly a kingdom at all. They've been ruled over by a succession of foreign powers. You know, the Babylonians were replaced by the Persians. The Persians were, were replaced by the Greeks. The Greeks were replaced by the Romans. And so, are they a kingdom at all? What's happened to the monarchy? Well, for much of that 500 years since the exile, there hasn't been a monarchy because they've been ruled over by foreign powers. More recently, they've had first the Hasmoneans, who were pretty corrupt, pretty useless, more, more kings like Saul. More recently, the last 40 years, they've had the Herods, who are even worse. The Herods are just a kind of puppet monarchy. They're puppets of the Romans. So that there is no monarchy. There's hardly any nation. What's the nation like? It's poor. It's not prosperous. Poverty is a real problem. It's corrupt. There's corruption throughout the whole of the government. It's hardly a nation at all. But here's the thing. You're sitting there and you're looking at the state of Israel, which is meant to be the kingdom of God. And so you're asking yourself what's gone wrong. But also you remember God's promises. You remember God's promises, particularly promises in the Psalms and the prophets. The promises that this is a kingdom that will last forever. That it will be God's kingdom forever. And how do you reconcile the two? You know, your eyes tell you that the kingdom is over, but the promises again and again have said God will be faithful to his promises. God will restore his kingdom. So how do you reconcile the two? There's an interesting tension. Do you remember that tension between God is our king and human kings? Well, that tension continues in the promises. So some Psalms suggest a human king will come, psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and also prophecies like Zechariah 9. There will be a human king who will come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But there are other psalms and other prophecies 
like Psalm 95 and Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52, which suggests it's Yahweh himself who will return to Jerusalem. How do you reconcile these promises? But above all, you've got this contrast between what your eyes tell you about the kingdom and what God promised, what Yahweh promised would happen. How do you reconcile the two? You've got all sorts of questions. And your questions are all about the kingdom. Are we still the kingdom of God or is it all over? Is he so angry with us because of the exile that he's actually now on the Roman side? Maybe the reason the Romans are so powerful and prosperous is because Yahweh has now joined their side. Maybe it's game over for Israel. Are we still the kingdom of God? Is Yahweh still our God? Is he going to be faithful to his promises? If so, when's it going to happen? What do we need to do to make it happen? These are the questions they should have, that they had. And we know these are the questions they had because there were loads of people going around with answers. So, for example, there were the zealots. The zealots were saying, uh, we need to take, we need to reestablish the kingdom of Israel by force. Okay, we're going to attack the Romans, and because God is on our side, because we are the kingdom of God, we're going to win. Now, fascinatingly, the zealots had political slogans like this. Ooh, next slide, please, Michael. If possible. There we go. The zealots said, no king but God. And also, we are the kingdom of God. And what they were doing was making a political statement. They were saying, we reject the Herodians. We don't want them because we are the kingdom of God. And so if you listen to the zealots, they would say the, arg- the, 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 the strategy should be military rebellion. Then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the opposite. They were basically on the side of Rome because they'd all got nice positions in, in the, this Israelite government. The chief priests were Sadducees. The senior people in the government were Sadducees. They were doing very nicely. They were the only people in Israel who were doing very nicely out of the Roman occupation. So they just don't want to rock the boat, basically. Um, Finally, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were saying, we need to return to the law. The reason God is not doing anything for us is we've been unfaithful to the law. We just need to take the law more seriously. Uh, We need to redouble our efforts. They were probably closest to the truth. The trouble is Israel had been trying to obey the law for the last thousand years. How well had it worked? But everyone was asking these questions. Where is God? What's happened to our kingdom? Next Sunday is Advent Sunday. And throughout the land, people will be reading these words. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you hear those words, 
It's dynamite. This is the answer to all your questions. This is the answer to what is happening to the kingdom of God. And the answer is, there's a new king. This was the good news. This is the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Because it answers all the questions about what Yahweh is doing with his kingdom. God hasn't forgotten. Israel is still the kingdom of God. Israel still has a hope and a future. It's all about the new king. The gospel that we read in the gospels answers all of these questions. It also fulfills all of these promises. All the promises that God had made to his people. Is, th- is this king who's going to come, is it a human riding on a donkey, or is it Yahweh himself? Yes. This is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. It's exactly what Israel were waiting to hear. It's not at all what they were expecting. It fulfilled all of the promises, and it completely upended their expectations. This new king who was to come wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. At the end of the Gospels, he's crowned with thorns. It's not what they were expecting. This king who arrives tells these people who believe that they are the kingdom of God that they need to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how confusing that is and how insulting that is if you're a first century Jew to be told that you need to enter the kingdom of God and that the way to enter the kingdom of God is to follow this new king. It both fulfills all of their hopes and all of their expectations and all of their dreams and it completely turns them upside down. So it is about Israel, but it's a completely new Israel. It's a completely new contract with God. It turns it all upside down. Uh, some conclu- Have we got time? Have we got time for some conclusions? Okay, five minutes. Here are my conclusions. Did anyone see this? My highlight of 2023 at the Oscars... The interview with Hugh Grant. This is Hugh Grant on the right, and this is someone called Ashley Graham on the left, and she's a model. And she had been employed, by, I think, by ABC um, to do the interviews on the red carpet at the Oscars. And she starts by... Now, Hugh is an actor, and he's there because he's an actor, and so he's interested in film and he's interested in acting. And so she asks him what he thinks of the Oscars. And he's a bit taken aback, and he says, well, it's Vanity Fair, isn't it? And what he means is Thackeray's 19th century novel about empty-headed people chasing money and fame. She thinks he's talking about the Vanity Fair party after the Oscars, because that's going to be a great gig, isn't it? And she says, oh, yeah, we're all looking forward to that. And he kind of looks at her strangely. 
And she sees his response, and so she moves on to safer ground, because she's a model, and she asks him, so, Q, what are you wearing tonight? And he says, my suit. <laughs> and she says, yeah but, yeah, but who made it? And he says, my tailor. And it gets worse and worse and worse. It, it's on YouTube, watch, it's hilarious. It's just a completely... It's a complete misunderstanding. They're not communicating. They're having a conversation, but they're not communicating. And I sometimes feel that when we read the Gospels, we are Ashley Graham, and the Gospels are Hugh Grant. We're asking questions that they're not trying to answer. They're not here to answer. We ask questions like, does God exist? Well, that was a question that people started asking in the 18th century. No one in Israel in the first century was asking whether God exists or not. We asked questions like, how can I, my sins be forgiven so I can go to heaven? Well, that was a real concern in the 16th century. I don't think many people in the first century were asking that. What they wanted to know was, what's happening to our kingdom? And my first point is, when we read the Gospels, it's amazing what it does when we climb into the head of a first century Jewish person. It's amazing how what was blurry becomes, moves into focus again and again and again. Um, it's uncanny how often the gospel writers quote the Old Testament. But which bits? They quote the Psalms and the prophets. Why? Because they're saying this is the one. They're saying this is Deuteronomy 17. This is the jigsaw piece that you've been looking for. That's the whole point. When you read the parables, they're parables which explain what the kingdom is like. And Jesus, in telling the parables, is both reaffirming what Israel thinks and completely undermining, subverting what Israel thinks. But you need to be in the head of a first century Jew in order to understand it. This Christmas, again and again and again, you will hear a message about a new king. It meant something 2,000 years ago. But my main point is this. The question is, what is the kingdom? And it seems to me that Christians talk a lot about the kingdom of God, but they define it as abstract concepts. They define the kingdom of God as peace and justice, or they talk about the rule and reign of God. And the trouble with these answers is they're true. Uh, Emma and I went to uh, see this lady on Friday night at St. George's. She's a Russian violinist. She was playing Schumann and Paganini. Alina Ibrahimova. She's very good. And if you asked us, what did we listen to on Friday night? And we said, sounds. Then that would be true. Yes, we did listen to sounds. That's a true statement. Is it an adequate statement? Or do you need to say more? Is there more to it than just sounds? Well, yes, there is. 
the gospel's answer to all of the questions about kingdom was a person, and the person is Jesus. I increasingly feel if someone tries to explain the kingdom and that explanation isn't absolutely anchored in Jesus, then it may not be worth listening to. But not just Jesus, but Jesus within this story. Because it's this story that makes sense of Jesus. It's the news of Jesus breaking into this story that's the good news. But even that's not enough. I was reading the other day Acts 1. I love this. So, this is, so Jesus died and risen again, and he spends 40 days with his disciples. Now think about this. He's been with them for three years. What's he been teaching them about for three years? The kingdom of God. He's got 40 more days. What does he speak to them about? The kingdom of God. You know, it's, there's a lot more to it than just peace and justice. But you'll find it in the story. You'll find it in the story. Um, but finally, in order, to, in order for me to communicate Alina Ibrahimova playing Schumann and playing Paganini, you had to be there. You had to experience it. Words would run out. I cannot put into words what it was like on Friday night. And it's the same, ultimately, it's the same with the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus turned up and invited people to enter the kingdom of God by following him. And it was, I, I think it's when we enter the kingdom of God by following him, when we experience it for ourselves, that's when we understand the kingdom of God because words run out. But that same invitation that he was making 2,000 years ago, he's still making today. He's still saying to each of us, enter the kingdom of God. And we enter the kingdom of God by, make, by making him our king, by choosing to follow him. The more that he is king over our lives, the more we will experience the kingdom of God. And it's when we experience the kingdom of God that we understand it. Thanks, Bill. Dylan, I wonder, just as you're putting Ivy onto your, whether you could lead us in a, in a, in a response to that. That'd be great to worship. I wonder, could we sing that song again? King of, King of Kings. The kind of declarations that are within that, um, would be a great way to finish. Could we stand?